All right. Well, I want to invite you to turn to Daniel chapter 1. And um, this morning we're going to look at uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse, uh, da- I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 4, as we begin this series on uh, hard questions, uh, honest answers. And we want to just introduce the series this morning. And uh, let me give you some background about, about this series. Uh, back in January, we did a survey here at Grace. And in that survey, um, I, we, we basically ask you to tell us what would help you communicate your faith in Christ a little bit more. And one of the overwhelming answers that we got that sort of surprised me a little bit was an answer that said, we'd like some answers to the questions that we have and some answers to the questions that our friends have. A lot of people at Grace mark that down. We took note of that. And so early this summer, I passed out some three-by-five cards, and I asked you to put down two questions on those three-by-five cards. One was a question that you might have, and one was a question that a friend has perhaps given to you. Well, we got stacks of cards. It was really great. We got a big stack of cards. And so what our staff did was we inputted those into a computer program, and then we began to look at the questions, and we began to categorize those questions. So I I went away for a week and looked at all the questions and prayed over the questions and came up with 10 questions that I think really captures uh, what you you put down on those cards. And so over the course of this series, we're going to tackle those questions, which came as a result of that that three-by-five card exercise earlier this summer. And the goal of this series is that you would be more confident in your own faith and more confident to be able to answer questions that come to you uh, from, you know, your non-Christian friends. As we go through the series, I want to really encourage you to plug into a small group. If you're not in a small group, uh, most, if not all of our small groups are going to be taking these questions and exploring them further as we go throughout the fall. Now, I want to begin with the principle that hopefully will undergird this entire series. And the principle is this, hard questions are an occasion for love. Hard questions are an occasion for love. Now, I don't know if you have seen the Subaru ads, but these are by far my favorite ads on TV. And they they do a very effective job because um, what, what what is the tagline for every Subaru ad? Love. It's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. And so you see uh, these dogs growing old in their master's cars. That was a little bit of a tearjerker, you know, if you you see that that chocolate lab who grows old in his master's car. I love that ad. Or you see the teenager, you know, who is growing older, you know, in her mom or her dad's car. And then the teenager gets the car, and then rather than the teenager saying, oh, yeah, like the hand-me-down car, yes, I got a Subaru, yes, it's awesome. I love these ads because it's very parallel to what Jesus says about the Christian life. Love is what makes a Christian a Christian, culturally speaking. Jesus says that uh, we will be known by our prowess as an apologist, right? No, he says we'll be known by our our ability to slay the enemies with our strong answers, right? Doesn't say that. Jesus says the mark of the believer is love. 
And so if we're going to be uh, excellent at answering questions that our friends have, we have to see those questions as occasions for love. I've talked to people uh, recently who told me that they got a question that was addressed against their faith, and they tensed up inside. They felt the butterflies inside. They felt like, oh my gosh, the pressure's on. I've got to be able to talk about my faith, and if I don't do this, I'm going to let Jesus down and God down, and, and it's going to be bad, and they're not going to ever come to Christ. That's not the way to think about it. Hard questions are an occasion for love. Several months ago, I said in, in, one, of the, in one of the Acts series that, uh, that, you know, this is not how you do evangelism. You know, Sports Illustrated called this event the fourth greatest event in sports history. Muhammad Ali blew everybody away with his athleticism and his charisma. And there he is gloating over Sonny Liston. Now, that iconic image, a wonderful image in American culture, is not how we convey our faith. Hard questions are not an occasion to blow the enemy away. Hard questions are an occasion for love. Love is what makes a Christian a Christian, culturally speaking. And in this series, what I want to do is I want to I show you the answers to the questions, but not to blow people away. Instead, to better be able to love the people whom you encounter during the day. Let me give you some, a little bit of background into Daniel's life as we see Daniel as an example of, of love. When Daniel was 16, Nebuchadnezzar the Great comes into Jerusalem, he besieges Jerusalem, he destroys Jerusalem, and Daniel would probably have seen his mom and dad be killed before his eyes. And then Daniel is wrenched away from all that he knows in Jerusalem, and he's taking, taken up and around the Fertile Crescent into Babylon. Once he arrives in Babylon, he receives a new name, a new occupation, learns a new language, learns a new culture. He's immersed in the religion of Babylon. Doesn't convert to it, obviously, but he's immersed in the culture of that religion. Now, if anybody could be justified in, in being angry at the man who destroyed his life, it would be Daniel. Daniel could have harbored a bitterness to the one who destroyed his family, killed his friends, uh, destroyed all that he knew, all that he held dear. Daniel could have hold a, held a grudge against Nebuchadnezzar. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he sees himself not first and foremost as a son in his father's house, but as a servant of the living God and a conduit of God's kingdom no matter where he was. And that meant Daniel would be a conduit of God's love, even if it meant love for the one who had brutally destroyed and killed his family. What we see in Daniel chapter 4 is a stunning example of a man who is confronted with a question and sees that question as an occasion for love. And this is the story of Nebuchadnezzar actually coming to faith in God. We want to see four phases of Daniel's life here. And the first phase is presence. Daniel is his presence. Uh, I'm sorry, patience. Daniel is patient. 
He's patient as Nebuchadnezzar uh, deals with his worldview. And here's the principle that we need to realize. As cultures become more secular, we've got to build stronger relationships and then be patient as those relationships grow. And so we see Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Now, Daniel chapter 4 is written by Daniel, but it is book-ended by words written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Did Nebuchadnezzar write any of the Bible? Yes, he did. He wrote the introduction and the conclusion to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel, who wrote the book of Daniel, has Nebuchadnezzar write the introduction and the conclusion to his book. By this time, Daniel is very old, and Nebuchadnezzar has ruled for at least 35 years. Daniel's not that old, but I mean, he's, he's, he's old based upon the ancient world. Now, why did it take so long for Nebuchadnezzar to come to faith in God? The reason why it took so long is because he had two big obstacles to his faith, and the first one was his success. Um, he reigned from 605 B.C., to 562 B.C. in what is modern-day Iraq. There's, the, there's the, the picture of it, and you can just see the basic outline of modern-day Iraq, and there's, there's ba Babylon, which is very close to Baghdad. It's on the Euphrates River. This guy was a brilliant strategist. Uh, this guy was not only a brilliant strategist, he was a statesman, he was an architect, he was a builder, he was extraordinarily gifted and successful. Things at this point are going very well for him also at home. He has, he is credited with being the architect for this astonishingly beautiful city. And Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and I was prospering in my palace. When he says it was, he, I was at ease in my house, he's saying, man, things are going great for me. I am at the top of my world professionally, personally, everything is going great. So during the golden years of his life, he's, he's got, he has got everything. Now, do you realize how hard it is for people to come to Christ when life is going well? People tend to not come to Christ when they're going well. People tend to not come to Christ when they encounter luxury. The luxury that Nebuchadnezzar encountered is the luxury that every one of your friends encounters today because we live in, in a time when luxury is democratized. Your iPhone represents, or your Android or your Samsung, whatever you have, represents a level of power that was simply unknown in the ancient world. If anybody in the ancient world could see you with your iPhone, they would be blown away by the power that you have. Luxury has been, luxury has been democratized. So people that you know in this culture fit the same profile as King Nebuchadnezzar because they don't need Christ in many ways since they don't need him. And so it's hard for people to get to the point where they sense that need. What do people do when they have a spare moment? What do you do when you have a spare moment? Whip out my iPhone. 
check the news, check my tweets, check Facebook, whatever. We live in a day where distractions have, be, have become ubiquitous to life. Luxury has become democratized. If you're going to encourage a friend to come to Christ, it's going to require patience in the context of this culture. Not only that, but Nebuchadnezzar had a different worldview. Nebuchadnezzar's worldview was the worldview of polytheism. Now, worldviews are ways that you think about reality. Worldviews are like having a pair of glasses. If you look through blue glasses, the whole world looks blue. If you look through green glasses, the whole world looks green. As I said many times, a worldview is like the box top on a puzzle. If you're going to put the puzzle together, you look at the box, tops, but the box top as your guide to putting the puzzle together. Worldviews function in much the same way. Now, there are four basic worldviews uh, today, uh, easy to think about. Worldview number one, no God. Worldview number two, many gods. Worldview number three, impersonal God. Worldview number four, infinite personal God. The exception to this is the United States of America, where we have a cobbled together worldview that a lot of people are, called, are calling therapeutic, moralistic deism. What that says is there is this really kindly, old, gentlemanly God who is sort of remote and distant, and he just wants us to be happy. He wants us to be somewhat moral, not, not, not so moral that we don't have fun, but it's, he's mainly about us being happy. So four main worldviews and a fifth one that is the product of uh, life in the United States of America right now, therapeutic, moralistic deism. Now, I want, to th I want you to think about your friends who are far from Christ. What worldview among those four do they embrace? Some are pure atheists. Some are pure pantheists. Many, though, embrace this worldview of therapeutic, moralistic deism. And the reason why it is so difficult for them to come to Christ is because they can't see outside the worldview. They can't take their glasses off. They've never taken their glasses off. And so it takes patience for you to be able uh, to, to convey that. So what, what do we do as followers of Christ? Paul gave us the answer. Pray that God will open up a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. What do you do if you're going to be patient with a friend who's very far from Christ? You pray that God would supernaturally provide open doors. Now, I don't know if any of you subscribe to Christianity Today, the magazine, but I uh, have subscribed to it for about five or six years now. And what I love about the magazine is that the last article in the magazine is always a story of how somebody came to know Christ. When I get the magazine, if I don't read anything else in the magazine, I read that story. And I loved those stories because these are stories about people who are very, very far from Christ. And it describes how they came to Christ. And usually there was a friend involved 
And that friend was patient. And that friend, at the right time, said the right thing as God the Holy Spirit was working in their life. You got to be patient if you're going to help friends who are far from Christ come into a relationship with Christ. Patience comes first. And then, secondly, comes preparation. Preparation. When opportunities come your way, be prepared to serve and speak as a conduit of God's, of God's love. After years of confidently investing in Nebuchadnezzar's life, tragedy struck, and all of Nebuchadnezzar's power was stripped away in a heartbeat, and he becomes a broken man. And guess who's there to pick up the pieces? Daniel. Daniel's there to pick up the pieces. And so here, here's how it happened. Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> had a recurring dream. And uh, he'd go to sleep. His mind was swirling with terrifying visions. For a guy who was at the height of his, his professional power and success, was as infuriating. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He calls... Uh, he attempts to handle it by virtue of his polytheistic worldview. He calls in his cabinet of religious advisors. They don't have a clue about how to interpret the dream. And so finally, uh, they call in, they call in uh, Daniel. And here's what it says. Finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom there is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related my dream to him. Now, just stop there for a moment and just check out what worldview is Daniel continue, I mean, is, is Nebuchadnezzar continuing to operate in? His old polytheistic worldview. Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar have known each other for 35 years at least. And Nebuchadnezzar is still holding on to this polytheistic worldview. Worldviews die hard. People don't tend to overcome their, their worldview. He says, uh, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you. You know, at this point, Daniel does not say, Nebuchadnezzar, come on, buddy, you know, for 35 years I've been telling you, you know, there's an infant personal God out there. You keep on missing it. This guy's had to be very, very patient, but now he's prepared. Uh, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar now recounts his dream. In his dream, he sees this magnificent tree. The tree is exquisitely beautiful with abundant leaves and extravagant fruit. The tree is so large that everyone on earth can see it. The birds of the sky find refuge beneath it. The beasts of the fields are, fields are there. It's this magnificently wonderful tree that he sees in his dream. And then Nebuchadnezzar sees an angel from heaven, descending and cutting down this beautiful tree. And the angel shouts this terrifying order, cut down the tree, cut off the branches, strip off the leaves, scatter the fruit. No sooner is the order given when the tree comes crashing to the ground. And like so many of the dreams, the imagery suddenly changes. The stump seems to morph into a living animal that roams the field. The animal uh, eats the dew-drenched grasses and slurps water from the flowing streams. And the animal is in that condition for seven years. And after seven years, the animal 
is restored to sanity. What does the dream mean? What does it mean? Verse 17. Well, the final clue is this. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules over mankind and gives leadership to whomever he wishes. In other words, this represents Nebuchadnezzar. This massive tree gets cut down. represents Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who morphs into an animal. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who is stripped of power for seven years. And what God sa says through Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to encounter a worldview shift in the aftermath of all this. Um, I want you to notice the fondness and the respect that these two men have. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. Literally, in the Aramaic here, it's, it, it was appalled for an hour. I mean, appalled for an uncomfortably long time. Have you ever, ever had somebody tell you a bit of tragic news and you just, you just are shocked and you're silent? Got a call from my, my father about a week ago. And my dad said, um, they've had some, an MRI on my uh, bump in my head and uh, the radiologist is convinced it's cancer, it's bone cancer. Silence on my part. I was appalled. I got a call yesterday from my dad saying, that it's not cancer. I was overjoyed. I was, thank you, God, for answering prayers. But when I first heard the news, I was appalled. That's Daniel, as he's hearing about this. His friend of 35 years is going to be stripped of power, stripped of dignity, and humbled greatly. Notice Notice how he says this. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Here's, here's the, the guy who destroyed his family. Why wouldn't Daniel say, Finally, after 35 years, pal, you're getting your due and good riddance to you? Why? Because Daniel's identity primarily is as the servant of the living God. And that means you love the people around you. You love your enemies, as Jesus said. Nebuchadnezzar is not his, his enemy now, but he sure was 35 years ago. And it's not just a one-way deal because Nebuchadnezzar is genu genuinely concerned for Daniel. As Daniel is, the color drains from Daniel's face, um, Nebuchadnezzar essentially says, don't, don't, don't let the dream alarm you. Don't, don't let it discourage you. Don't let it blow you away. These guys have an intense care for each other, different worldviews, different first languages, different religions, but very strong per interpersonal relationship. So, of course, the, the dream is that uh, the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he's the greatest, most powerful ruler on the earth. Nebuchadnezzar's his, his rule is going to be cut off. His tree is going to be cut down. And he's going to have a total worldview shift. But Daniel sees an open door. 
And this is the open door he's been waiting for for 35 years, a chance to speak truth into the king's life. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Is there anything remotely connected to the gospel in that statement? Well, not, not really, not really, but in a way there is. In a way there is. Because what this says is that there is a God in heaven who is willing, who's good and willing to prolong the prosperity of the king if the king will cry out for mercy in an authentic way. But it's just a little bit of the truth. It's, it's not all the good news. It's a part of the good news. And one of the things I find that believers sometimes struggle with is, I got to get the entirety of the gospel out right, like, like right now. And you don't. You don't. God is God. God is sovereign over conversations. And if you have an opportunity to get a portion of the good news out, get it out. God will allow you to get the rest of it out. Don't feel the pressure to do the whole thing if the whole thing's not appropriate right now. Daniel got a little bit of the good news out. And that was, that was what was needed at, at the moment. Now, let me give you two quick applications based upon this verse. In general, the more radical the worldview, the more you need to earn the right to be heard. If you talk to somebody who is, is devoted to their atheism, it's going to take you a longer time to build that relationship and share the gospel. If you know somebody who is devoted to their therapeutic, moralistic deism of the United States, they may be thinking, you know, God's just out there and I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with God. You know, I'm, I'm okay with him. He's okay with me. I'm okay. It may take a while for them to realize that they are a sinner and that they need to have their sin problem addressed by Jesus' work on the cross. So the more radically different the worldview, the more you need to earn the right to be heard. But after you do win the right to be heard, you must have something to say. Daniel had something to say. We too need to have something to say. Peter tells us to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to give an account for the hope that is in us, and yet do this with gentleness and reverence. We have to have something to say. You can start by telling your own story of faith. And as we talked about in the, in the Acts series, you should have a story that you can tell in three to five minutes. You should also have a story that you can tell in about 10 to 20 minutes. If you have a faith story that you can tell, you have opportunities to share the gospel. That leads us to, to the third thing. And the third thing is presence. Uh, presence. We need to lovingly be present when somebody far from Christ encounters a crisis. Because when the bottom falls out of somebody's life, things tend to get very chaotic. And everything that Daniel prophesies comes true. Twelve months later, the king is walking uh, on the balcony of his, of his apartment, and he looks out over the city. Now, this is an artist's rendition of the city, uh, based in part by archaeological evidence. You see that blue, that blue gate, that Ishtar gate is, you can see that in a, in a museum. 
Uh, you can see re replicas of it in the British Museum. I think the original is in, is in Germany. But uh, if anybody was, could deservedly say, I'm, I'm pretty awesome <laughs> in the ancient world, it would have been Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has, have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? The guy's intoxicated with his, with his greatness. He's, he's drunk with the love that he has for himself, and instantly a terrifying mental illness sweeps down on Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the painting by William Blake, and yet Nebuchadnezzar becomes like an ox roaming the fields. I wonder how this happened. I, I, I wonder how this happened. Was, did Daniel create in advance a place for Nebuchadnezzar to be in the city walls of Babylon? Was Nebuchadnezzar in the hanging gardens that were walled off for seven years? I don't, I don't, know, where, I don't know where Nebuchadnezzar would have been, but he was, he was there somewhere in Babylon uh, protected. And Daniel, I think, had three concerns. <clears throat> Number one, protect Nebuchadnezzar physically. He wanted to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar lasted the seven years that he knew his mental illness would last. Daniel's thinking, I have got to protect the king who will be restored to power. That's what God said. Got to protect him. Protect him physically. Secondly, he's got to protect Nebuchadnezzar's power base governmentally because you know how power works. Absolute power corrupts. And if somebody thinks that Nebuchadnezzar's power has been broken, guess who's going to come in and try to take that power away? A son, a nephew, a brother. That's how it works. That's how power bases work. And so Daniel would have protected Nebuchadnezzar's power base by, I'm assuming, Daniel becoming the, prime, the functional prime minister. We don't hear about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I can sure imagine Daniel ruling Babylon as the, in the stead of Nebuchadnezzar and having maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ruling underneath him. But for seven years, somebody had to rule Babylon. And I'm thinking the text suggests that it was Daniel. Do you, do you see the incredible integrity that Daniel would have to have had to say, I'm going to do this for seven years, and at the end of the seven years, I'm going to restore my, my enemy, my former enemy back to power, the guy who killed my family. I'm going to restore him back to power. Um, you know, people in the ancient world didn't do term limits. They didn't do term limits. Your term, you were term limited when you were killed, and Daniel was protecting Nebuchadnezzar physically and governmentally, and Daniel's going to restore leadership when he gets better because one of the things that I find, I find interesting is that when the seven years were over, um, Nebuchadnezzar's advisors now, are now seeking him out again. Well, wait, who sponsored that deal? It had to have been, had to have been Daniel. By the way, you know how the captivity is 70 years? And Nebuchadnezzar's illness is seven years. 
I think that number seven told Daniel, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's time in his mental illness is going to be restorative. It's going to be redemptive. Just like the seven years of captivity is going to restore you back to the land, the 70 years of Nebuchadnezzar's illness is going to be restorative and redemptive. And this man, I'm assuming Daniel thought this, may come into a relationship with God. And now finally, Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith. He's there out there, you know, and out there in the grass. He's on all fours. He's acting like a beast. And he turns his eyes to heaven. And instantly, his sanity returns. And you say, how, how can that take place? I recently read a story about a woman who was an atheist. She was a feminist. She was high up in her organization. And one day, she's reading a story, and she bursts into tears. She says, what's, what's, what's that about? And she lifts her eyes upward to heaven. And she keeps doing that. And the Lord gradually used that, that touch in her emotions to begin to shift her toward coming to Christ. The Spirit has His own ways of drawing people. He'll do it the way He wants to. How do we know his faith was authentic? Look at verse 37. I, Nebuchadnezzar, <clears throat> now praise, exalt, and honor the God of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He gathers his leaders, and sometime later, Nebuchadnezzar begins to uh, tell people um, the story, the story. Now, that leads us to the final phase. Uh, when you love others who are far from Christ, you've got to be their sponsor. Because when they come to Christ, you need to help them know how to go public with their faith. How is a person going to know how to articulate their newfound faith unless you disciple them? How is a person going to be able to tell all of his friends about what's happened in his heart unless you help them formulate those words based upon the Scriptures? This is Daniel's book. Daniel gets to write this book under the authority of the Holy Spirit, and Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, what I want you to do is I want, I'm, I'm going to write the account of your tran transformation. Can you write the introduction and the conclusion to this, to this account? In other words, Daniel is helping Nebuchadnezzar go public about his faith. So we, we go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live on the earth, May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Notice the worldview shift. Notice the shift. Most High God is a technical term in the ancient world for the God who is above all the lower gods, for the infinite personal God, the infinite personal creator God. And what attribute does this God have? Signs and wonders, signs and wonders being a description that He is all-powerful, an all-powerful God. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. Now Nebuchadnezzar breaks into worship as he writes this. His, this kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. He has had a worldview shift. Yes, but He has had a personal shift toward, toward God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, now praise 
exalt and honor the King of heaven. Not just a worldview shift, which is intellectual, but a personal conversion uh, to, 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 to God. Now, would this have been a difficult letter to send out? He's sending out this letter to all the people around his kingdom. Yes. It would have been religiously embarrassing. Prior to this, he was the chief uh, of the religion. I mean, as the king, he was the one who controlled the entire religious system in Babylon. Oh, he had his magicians. He had his his magi, he had his wise men, but he was the chief over all of that. It was a little bit religiously embarrassing to say, um, I've switched worldviews, guys. I'm, I'm different than I, than I used to be. That would have been embarrassing. Would have been embarrassing. Like the Dalai Lama, if he came to Christ, writes a letter saying, guys, uh, I've been wrong for all these years, and I've now placed my faith in Jesus Christ. A little embarrassing. It would have been, pers- uh, it would have been uh, personally embarrassing. Um, he probably didn't relish the idea of sharing that he had had a mental illness. One of the things this tells us is we as followers of Christ must be authentic when we tell our stories. And he is remarkably authentic as he tells a story. Now, let me, let me conclude with, with how you can show love to your friends. Four questions. If you, are, if you are hit with a question, here are four questions that you can ask in return. Somebody says, I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Somebody says, I, I don't believe that God exists. Four questions. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Uh, how did you come to that conclusion? What are the implications of that? And then if somebody says, I don't have any reasons, just believe. Say, if you don't have other reasons, we'd be open to another point of view. What we have um, out in the atrium is we have, we have little cards like business cards that have those four questions on them. If you want to show love to somebody who asks you a question, use these four questions as a way to express that love. All right, next week we tangle into the first one. First one is, why should I go to church? And we'll begin with that next week. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you now and just thank you for uh, the example of Daniel and so many other people, Lord, who were conduits of love. Lord, may we be conduits of love as we interact and deal with people who are far from Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our prayer team's up here. They'd love to pray for you about uh, anything that's going on in your life. Have a great week, and see you tonight at 6 o'clock.
there's only really one way to get there. Can a lost man find his way back home? Can a lost man find his way back home? Well, how can you go home again? If you're not sure you've ever been, then a lost man.